It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Many of us allow fear to stop us from achieving what our heart desires. We don't take risks. Today's guest, Lisa Thompson, climbs mountains to challenge herself physically and to explore her own inner landscape. She teaches that we are responsible for defining our own boundaries, finding our own happiness, and facing our fears head on. Lisa is a mountaineer, cancer survivor, speaker, and coach. She has completed the seven summits, reaching the top of the highest peak of each of the seven continents. Through her company, Alpine Athletics, Lisa shares her message of strength and resilience. She is the author of the book, Finding Elevation, Fear and Courage on the World's Most Dangerous Mountain. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Thanks for having me, Joan. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Lisa, what you've achieved is truly remarkable, but I have to ask, how does someone raised in the flat farmlands of Illinois go on to climb the greatest mountains in the world? What led you to following that path? (laughs) It's a very fair question, because I didn't grow up, being from the Midwest part of the U.S., I I wasn't surrounded by mountains, and I also didn't, you know, didn't learn or know about, like, pioneering efforts of Sir Edmund Hillary to climb Mount Everest. I, it just wasn't even in my lexicon. It wasn't something my family talked about or I knew about. And I wasn't even particularly athletic when I was a kid either. So about 25 years later, I um, had a job. I moved to Seattle, which is where I live today. And here, climbing and being in the mountains is a big part of the culture. We're fortunate to be surrounded by beautiful mountain ranges. And so I took this first job in Seattle and I was the only woman at my level uh, in that, in that role. And the, my peers who were, you know, great guys, they would regularly go climbing on the weekends to mountains local to Seattle. And I knew nothing about climbing, really didn't have a desire to learn um, wasn't even curious particularly about it. But when my peers would come back to the office on Monday, they had these great stories about, you know, fording icy rivers together and traveling up steep slopes wearing crampons uh, as a rope team. And I, what I saw, you know, sitting in my dingy cubicle on Monday, what I saw and felt was this camaraderie mm-hmm. that my peers shared. And I felt very left out of that. And I thought that if I could join them climbing, they would start to see me as capable in the office. That that would somehow translate to me being included in this group. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I could have done the very logical thing, which would have been to say to them, hey, that sounds like fun. Can I come with you? Or how but about you want to I go just... for a drink after work? <laughs> or that would have been much easier. Yes. But I just didn't have the courage or the voice 
back then to do that. And so instead I got frustrated by, you know, feeling left out and I decided I would go climbing on my own. Again, no idea. I had no idea what that meant or what it would entail and certainly not what it would lead to. But it really was, you know, this sense of wanting to be seen as capable and included that drove me to start climbing. And I would say that that sense of of needing to prove myself stuck with me for a lot of years. But it really <laughs> does, least it really does show the power of of what we're each capable of. Because, you know, when I, I wanted to lead off with that question, because I'm a girl from Jersey and I'm thinking, you know, who does this and why do they do it? But taking someone like you, taking someone like me, and just it, it shows what we are capable of achieving mm-hmm. when we put our mind to something. So true. So true. And I, I think, you know, a lot of people, and maybe you fall into this category, Joan, if you want me to do something, mm-hmm. the best way to motivate me is to tell me I can't do it or I shouldn't do it. Absolutely. Because that just lights the fire like nothing else. And that was, that was how I felt back then. But how does a person, Lisa, even go from knowing nothing about the sport to climbing the seven summits? How is that even possible? Well, I'm also very studious. I And I like data. I like to study. I like to learn. And so initially, the first mountain I climbed was Mount Rainier, which is the highest peak in Washington. It's 14,400 feet. And I summited that on my second attempt in 2009. And... I learned so much. Like when I look back on that first climb, my backpack was so, so heavy, contained so many things I didn't need. And it was painful. It was hard. And so that forced me to to look at the situation and try to understand what I could do better, what I could Mm -hmm. learn, how I could make this easier on myself. And so gradually I just began to learn more and more, to become more and more confident, to build my skills. Um, I focused you know, very, very intently on physical preparation because I felt like, you know, I back then and still sometimes I'm the only woman on a climbing team. And I knew that I couldn't control what other people thought of me. And, you know, there were many times when people thought like, oh, that's cute. You think you're going to climb Denali, for example. Um, And so I wanted to be as prepared as I could possibly be. So being prepared physically became like a part-time job for me. Um, and gradually, I the other thing I would say, especially if people are interested in you know learning about climbing, is to just align yourself with other people, other climbers who are more skilled than you, whom you trust, and that are willing to share and you know learn and, and help you learn and teach you bit by bit what it takes to climb big mountains. What type of training goes into preparing for that type of climb? <laughs> I could talk about this all day. <laughs> so this was my, so Alpine Athletics is the company I started in 2018 after I realized that, hey, I am often much more prepared physically than anyone else on my team. And there's something to that. And so I myself got a, a very well-known climbing coach and learned a lot about about the answer to that question and um, and eventually started a company where now I get to coach people every day. So um, looking back, it's just an amazing turn of events. But so mountaineering is an endurance activity. And most people early on don't realize that or don't consider it as such. And so they'll, you know, sort of go to the gym and lift a bunch of weights and do a bunch of squats and get their lower body, you know, really strong. But 
overlook the fact that you've got to climb for multiple hours per day on successive days for, you know, most big mountain climbs. And so it requires a lot of, you know, not super fun, not super sexy cardio work that's pretty moderate intensity for the individual, um, but high volume of that. And so that's really, I think, what makes the difference for, for athletes, especially if they're new to an endurance activity like climbing. And there's also a really big mental component, as you can imagine. Um, you know, I've seen many people who are physically prepared, strong enough to climb, even Mount Rainier. I've seen them turn around 20 minutes out of the parking lot because they just, you know, something gets in their mind about this being too hard and they're able, they're unable to push through that and they let this belief that they're not able to do it become pervasive. Mm -hmm. Um, So I also, you know, in my personal climbing and in the the mountaineers that I coach, really focus on being as mentally prepared as possible for whatever the peak is that you're about to attempt. Everything that you're describing with mountain climbing, there are just so many wonderful life lessons because you were talking (sighs) about the things that were within your control and outside of your control and fitting in. And, you know, we all have mountains in our lives that are representative Mm -hmm. of something we're going through. But how do you prepare for the things that are outside of your control? Like you, you said, you get your mental toughness and you're physically ready. But what about all those things that are outside of your control, the weather, the terrain? How do you get your head ready for those things? Yeah, great question. I think the, the first thing is to identify as best you can what those things are. When we're talking about most mountains that are, you know, regularly climbed have been climbed by a lot of other people. And so we have decent data about, you know, what is the weather like? What are the objective hazards? Objective hazards being things like rockfall or avalanche. And those, so I think those are, for the large part, known possibilities. But as you said, whether or not you will encounter those situations is entirely unknown and entirely out of a climber's control. And so I do a couple of things. First, I want to know what all those things are. I want to know what my risk of encountering rockfall is, for example, what the temperatures are going to be like, what you know, typical weather, typical winds, typical temperatures are like for that peak at that time. And then I really assess for myself, what is it that worries me about those things? You know, in the case of Rockfall, obviously, the the worst outcome could be death. And so what am I going to do, A, to keep myself safe, but also to prepare myself in case that happens? Um, And I, you know, the more there's so many unknowns on a mountain, and the more that I can make those unknowns something that is less novel, to me and to my brain, the less stressful they're going to be. So I go into every big climb with a plan for, you know, what are those things that could get in my way and have a plan to work through them. And, you know, in the case of something like being cold or bad weather, I'll, you know, tell myself I'm going to add a layer of of glove, for example, I'm going to go 20 minutes, I'm going to see if I feel any better. And if I don't, sometimes the outcome is that I need to turn around. Um, there was a point on K2, we were at about 26,000 feet. I was with my team and we thought the weather was going to be great for a summit attempt as great as it can be (laughs) great meaning low winds and maybe, you know, 10 below zero. And when we got to that elevation, that was not the case. It had snowed. 
much more, about five feet more than we had expected, which made avalanche risk very, very high. And so we as a team had to meet and decide what our options were and what the best course of action would be for, for us collectively. And fortunately, we were able to wait it out. We got new weather forecasts, which showed that the storm would abate in about two days and we had enough food and resources to stay at that camp and wait out the storm and we're able to then summit. But um, I guess the short answer to that question is just knowing, knowing what those possible things are that are out of your control and as best as you can having a plan to work through those if they occur. Lisa, you're a cancer survivor. How did that diagnosis factor into mountain climbing? <laughs> it's, a, it's a question that I have you know, try, I think I very often for a long time, I wanted to know if, if cancer informed my climbing or if climbing helped me get through cancer. And I don't think that they can be separated. I finally, after years of pondering that question, realized that they're so intertwined that I can't, I can't separate them. They're just a part of who I am. And so I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2015. And that diagnosis came just as I was preparing to climb in the Himalaya for the first time. So the Himalaya is, you know, this huge mountain range that bisects Asia. And I felt very proud of myself to be ready to take on a peak there. I was planning to climb a mountain called Monaflu, um, which is one of the, the high, there's only 14 mountains in the world that are above 8,000 meters or 26,000 feet. And this was one of them. So it was a really big deal for me as a climber to be ready to take that on. And so to receive that diagnosis at that time, you know, regardless of your situation in life, it's devastating. And I realized that having cancer gave me the motivation and having that mountain still on the horizon gave me the motivation to work through cancer. Um, and I saw, you know, to me, cancer became... And this isn't to say there weren't moments where I felt sorry for myself and, you know, cried and asked what, why was this happening? But it, I really saw it as a project. And that's like my goal right now is to kick cancer's butt. And I want people surrounded by, I want to be surrounded by people who are strong, who are totally committed to that goal like I am. And it, you know, thankfully things came together. I had an incredible uh, medical team here in Seattle at Swedish Medical Center, and I was able to go to Nepal as planned um, that year and to climb Montesquieu. When I look back, thinking about sort of the other side of that, you know, cancer taught me more than anything that life is incredibly fragile, that it can change for us in an instant, despite believing that we've done all these things that we think will keep us safe. Um, it's incredibly fragile and that it's up to each of us to define our lives and to define the lives that we will live. And so those two things, cancer and mountaineering became just very intertwined for me. And I, I think that one, they, they supported and informed each other in a way that made me who I am today. I recently interviewed a woman who wrote a book and her work is, a, is around understanding your mortality and living your life as though you're mm. going to die. And because, you know, it's her belief that everything becomes more precious and, and we live in a different way when we can see the end in sight, not necessarily yep. having a diagnosis, but just living with that understanding. 
Do you think that cancer diagnosis taught you in a way to eliminate more fears? Did you become even more courageous if that's possible? Were you more willing to take risks after that? Yeah, and I absolutely did. It made me realize that, you know, when you're in your 40s, you just mortality is not often something that you that you spend a lot of time thinking about. And so it brought that into very clear focus for me. And it it also just reinforced probably isn't the right word. It made me realize that it could be taken away from me at any second. And I did not want to look back on my life, however long or short that might be, and have any regrets. I wanted to get the most out of it that I could that I could. I didn't want to look back and say, well, I should have, I should have attempted Mount Everest just to see what it was like. I wanted, I wanted to do it and to put everything I, I had into it. And maybe it didn't work out, you know, same with starting my own business. Like that was, that was a daunting, scary decision, but I would have regretted not doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and maybe, you know, it would be very curious to know more about this book because often if I'm having trouble making a decision, I will try to fast forward to the end of my life and and ask myself, would I regret not doing this? Or would I regret this decision versus that decision? And that usually makes it very clear what the right path is for me. Yeah. You know, when I started doing this work over a decade ago, it really was the result of going through a lot of personal trauma and I had lost almost everything in my life. And, and you know, when you get brought to your mm-hmm. knees, so to speak, you do start to appreciate life differently and you look at fear differently mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I've learned that there really is no such thing as failure or fear. It's just a learning lesson. It's a, it's a shift. It's a different way to do something. And, and I think that that really is just such a big lesson to learn that we're here for a very short period of time. Every day is precious. And we really should live mm-hmm. as though we're not going to be here forever. Yes, I completely support that. And I, you know, the, the word failure to me, I wish in our culture, it had a different connotation. Mm-hmm. Because so often, you know, those things that we might label as a failure, are, are really opportunities to learn what's right for us, what isn't right for us, what relationships work, what jobs work, what city we want to live in. And I, I love the idea of it's just, it's just input, right? It's just information that helps us I think, narrow in on where we should be. Um, I'm I'm really this year trying to change the meaning of the word failure for myself. When you wanted to start climbing, what did the people around you say? Did they think you were crazy? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and even that carried through until, you know, my father, I learned my father had cancer, had lung cancer when I was climbing Mount Everest. And um, he died about a month later. And he you know, was a big part of my life, was always very, very proud of me, and at the same time, terrified of what I was doing. And particularly before, you know, or when I made the decision to climb K2, um, the people around me, you know, something sort of shifted. When I, when I was, you know, preparing and climbing Everest, people were very supportive and like, they could sort of wrap their brains around what it meant to climb Mount Everest, their movies. And K2 is a completely different beast. It's, you know, though it's the second highest mountain in the world, it's about 800 feet shorter than Mount Everest. Um, It's on the Pakistan-China border. So much more remote than Mount Everest and much, much more deadly. 
Um, you know, depending on what stats you read, about one in four people who attempt K2 um, don't make it. And so it was important for me that my dad, before he died, knew that this was the next mountain that I was going to attempt. And, you know, obviously, you know, their friends and loved ones knew as well. And I could see sort of in their eyes when I would share this with them or when I would talk about K2 that they were worried about me, whereas before I think they were excited and supportive. And it's an interesting thing that that happens when, you know, I can sense this worry and this concern, which I know is coming from a place of love, but there's also this element of them I felt there was this element of them not wanting me to do it for that reason of wanting me to, to stay safe so badly that I wouldn't attempt this thing that was very important to me. And so there were some difficult conversations mm-hmm. um, that took place with, you know, with family members and with friends about why this is important to me and knowing that they couldn't really fully appreciate because they hadn't had this experience before they hadn't, you know, been in, in a, on a mountaintop and felt just the sense of accomplishment or exhilaration. And so there was a lot of difficult conversations that ended just in trust and like, this is important to me, for me to be who I am. Right. And I appreciate and respect your love and concern. And I need to do this anyway. And I really want your support as I move forward. Right. And so, it, you know, it came together, but it was not an easy time in my life. No, and I, and I understand that. And I'm sorry for your loss. I lost my father to lung cancer as well. So I do understand. Okay. And when you climb to the highest peaks in the world, what is it like to be standing there looking out at the world? Is it almost like mm-hmm. you feel like you're touching heaven? Like, what does that feel like? Yeah, it is a very, anytime I'm in the mountains, it it makes me feel very small mm-hmm. and insignificant and vulnerable. And those are feelings that I try to avoid <laughs> the rest of my life, right? We spend a lot of time, at least I do, not appearing vulnerable, always appearing like in control and knowing everything. And the fact is that in those situations, it's the mountain that's in control. It's not me. And I'm a you know tiny speck on her flanks and I'm asking for safe passage. And so that sort of feeling of being, of trusting something that's bigger than me, to me just creates a sense of wholeness in my life because I think it's so counter to every other part of my life. Um, The feeling on the summit is, you know, I think a lot of people think you get to the summit and there's a big party and you, you know, congratulate one another and and while that is true can be true to me and to many people the summit is halfway (laughs) Um, and so I have a pretty hard no celebrating rule at the summit of a big peak because there is so much that can go wrong on the descent and in fact most climbing accidents occur while descending and so I will generally you know take a moment to just be grateful to the mountain and to the circumstance and the people that have helped me achieve that. And then, you know, have this sort of checklist of making sure my gear is solid, checking my oxygen levels, taking some photos and then descending. Um, 
which is, you know, it's crazy. I think people are often surprised by the fact that you've spent sometimes years training for this moment and that moment lasts maybe 20 minutes and then, Mm -hmm. you know, it's time to descend. But I think that feeling of accomplishment is something that mountaineers will keep with them forever, myself included. And I also think that like many significant events, the impact of that continues to evolve and stick with you over time. And, you know, those are the feelings that I really relish, sometimes more than standing on the summit. The book is Finding Elevation, Fear and Courage on the World's Most Dangerous Mountain. If you'd like to get more information about Lisa and her work, you can visit lisaclimbs.com. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. As I've been listening to you speak throughout this conversation, and I mentioned this briefly before, we're talking about mountain climbing, but we all have mountains in our lives, and there are so many life lessons that you have imparted during this discussion that I do encourage our listeners to go back and listen again from the beginning because there's so much here that we can pull out and apply to our own lives no matter what it is we're going through. So I really am so grateful that you were here to share all of this with us and all that you've learned. So thank you for being here. Thank you. It's just been a fun conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in.